Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkins. The fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Oorang Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Book Pod. It's Corrie Kirkin with you for another episode. And I had a wonderful chat the other day with Shan Pryor. Shan lives in Melbourne. She's a writer, a broadcaster, a musician, and a creative writing teacher. And you probably know her name from her radio days on ABC here in Melbourne. And also, she wrote a regular column for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. I first met Shan in 2014 when she had released a book called Shy, a memoir. And I was co-interview with John Fain on the ABC Morning Program in Melbourne. And we had Shan as our guest. And I was absolutely riveted by her conversation and the fact that somebody so articulate and confident and sunny and just such a wonderful big personality in the studio actually had written a book about how shy she was and she traced back her history of being shy. Such a fascinating book, I highly recommend. Well, Shan has a new book out now and it's called Childless, A Story of Freedom and Longing. And it's Shan's story of always wanting to have children but never being able to. And then she finds herself at 50, childless, and coming to terms with what all of that meant. This is such a beautiful book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sean Pryor, it is an absolute delight. And also, I, I'm filled with gratitude to have you here today because your new book, Childless, A Story of Freedom and Longing, is a very courageous book on your part, but I'm filled with gratitude on behalf of all of those men and women who have been unable to have children and who wanted them. You've taken us through a real minefield here, Sean. Sure have. <laughs> it's a bit of a tearjerker, this book. It's close to my heart, and we'll go into that a bit later. This is your story, your journey. But I was filled with so much sorrow and grief for so much of this book, but also fundamentally the power of love and self-love to get us through something like this. 
So I'm utterly intrigued. Why did you put yourself through the process of writing this book? Yeah, no, it's a good question because it was quite the process. Um, Look, I think I mostly did it for selfish reasons, although it might not read like that. I have forever used writing as a way of processing difficult things and talking to myself about those difficult things and trying to understand my own behaviour. So in large part, this, this memoir was a form of writing as therapy for me. I, as you will have read about, I did not manage or even acknowledge the deep grief that I felt over the years about my childlessness and I got myself into a lot of hot water by not managing or acknowledging that grief. So I, yeah, I thought I've got to, I've got to find a way of thinking this through, I think best on the page. And then I thought, well, if I had all of these difficulties with those experiences of, of infertility and with the grief that came with that, I'm not going to be all alone in that. You know, there will be... I assume many, many other people, men and women, who will have dealt with this sadness and perhaps for lots of complicated reasons not been able to talk about it or have it acknowledged publicly or process it. So, yeah, but mostly I did it for me. (laughs) Well, we used to have a bookshop and people would come into the shop saying, oh, where is your self-help area, please? And we would say, no, we don't have a self-help, but we do have some books that relate to self-care and self-love. And people would look at us like we're a little wacky because we didn't follow any kind of strict librarian library format. But I do feel with this book that it is very much about self-care and self-love. And I think if you were reading this, not just about child childlessness, but a lot of aspects of when things don't kind of go the way that you planned, how do you then, to use that hackneyed word now, pivot, but how do you pivot into a, into a gentler space or a, or a happier place? I'd like to take you back to your 20s because this book really does start with you in your 30s acknowledging in, in a partnership uh, with a chap called Jack. You both decide that you might like to get pregnant and you go on that journey. But let's take you back to your 20-something self where were you at that point thinking about pregnancy, relationships, the future? Was it all yours? Were you slightly concerned that maybe this kind of dream was not or, or this, this traditional view was not the thing that you wanted to do? Where were you at? Oh, look, in retrospect, I think I was so naive and, and it was a form of hubris really because, to be honest, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't get this thing that I wanted. I had wanted to have kids my whole life. I don't remember there being a time when I didn't think, oh, great, I'll get to have kids eventually. And, you know, that was an interesting position for me because in my 20s I was working as an environment campaigner and I was, you know, immersed in some very, very dark prognostications about the future, which, of course, we're seeing coming true all around us now. So I this was, is the 90s, just to give people... No, this is the late 80s. Late 80s. Late 80s right. I was working for the Australian Conservation Foundation, campaigning on ozone depletion, global warming, anti-nukes, so the really, really big, scary global issues. And 
quite a few people around me, my, my friends and colleagues in the environment movement, were really debating with themselves about whether they could or should bring a child into this world because, you know, it was already looking really scary. I did not have a moment's indecision. I probably had a few moments guilt <laughs> when I kind of learnt more and more about population and, and, and sustainability and overconsumption, but I just told myself it's okay because I'll have kids who, who, who like me, will try and save the world. So, yeah, I, I just always thought that would happen. Even, even if I thought I wasn't going to be in a relationship at the right time, I knew that I would find a way to do this or I believed that I would find a way to do this. So, you know, I was busy having all sorts of really interesting different careers in my 20s and early 30s. And then, as you pointed out, in my early 30s, I was in a relationship with a very, very lovely man who also wanted to have kids. And so we were like, okay, well, we'll just do this now. And as you know, that's not how it turned out. Yes, let's get pregnant and have the baby before the next holiday. Mm. I hear that a lot. Yeah. Or um, while, while I'm in the perfect position to get maternity leave. Mm. <laughs> Sean, I'd love you to – there's a particular part of this book at the very at the very beginning, really. I'd love if you would do us the honour of reading it. It's when you have some sort of an epiphany or an epiphanous moment about you and your work with the planet and mm-hmm. where to from here. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you'd read that little – I must say that the layout of this book is terrific. For readers who haven't yet come across Sean's book, it's shorter, sharper – and I really mean some of them are quite sharp and <laughs> twist the knife in your guts kind of chapters. And they're like little essays and you go back and forth in time and at the end of it we have a complete picture of your journey over 30 years and this is sort of the beginning. So if you can read that would be yeah. lovely. So this is, um, this is a chapter called Convergence for reasons that you know, have no basis in anything intelligent. I decided to make every chapter heading end with the sound ints. So this is <laughs> convergence. It's 1989 and I'm cycling slowly across a bridge spanning an eight-lane freeway on my way to save the planet. I've spent the last three years campaigning on ozone depletion and global warming for the Australian Conservation Foundation, trying to wrap my unmathematical brain around the delicate sciences of climatology and oceanography, trying to make those delicate sciences into powerful stories that will nudge people to action. In the process, I've learnt things I wish I didn't know about the workings of the circumpolar vortex and the potential loss of island nations. The world has become a different place, full of institutional roadblocks and oblivious over-consuming humans. At least one of my campaigning mates has given up on the idea of having children. When he turned 30, he had a vasectomy. Adding to the population will only make things worse, he told me. Why create people you love and condemn them to an uncertain future on an overheating planet? It was hard to argue against his logic. But I still want a child. Not right now, I'm too young and too busy, but later, definitely. One would be great, a second would be a bonus. No more than that, because I don't want to make the overpopulation problem worse. And my child will try to save the planet, just like me. Cycling against the wind, I turn my head and see long lines of vehicles stretching eastward to the outer suburbs of Melbourne. The cars are not moving. They're idling, waiting for the peak hour crush to dissipate, spewing out carbon dioxide. I break to a standstill on the side of the bridge and stare at the ribbons of cars snaking out to the horizon. And it overtakes me at last. 
the dread I've been pushing down for the last three years. It rises from the pit of my gut to my throat and I hear myself. I'm whimpering. Standing astride a stationary bicycle above the freeway, fingers white-knuckled on the handlebars, I'm crying. Because now I know. I can't do it. The end of the world is nigh and it's my fault because I haven't done enough and can never do enough. I'm too small and too tired and too afraid of the future. I swivel the bike around, scrape away the tears and ride home again as fast as my legs can manage. Three decades later, a Swedish schoolgirl is addressing a United Nations climate summit in New York and she's snarling. She's lecturing the grown-ups about tipping points, feedback loops, climate justice, betrayal and forgiveness. She wants to cry. I can feel it in my own throat. But she won't. She's a genie released and she's trying to magic up some shame before it's too late. I do the maths. She is exactly the age my first child would have been. And I'm one of the grown-ups she's lecturing. Wow. So... When you and Jack decide, or when you were really firm on the idea that you wanted a baby, you were no longer in that environmental space, were you? Well... I mean, personally, committed to, but not working... Yeah, not prof- not professionally. No, I, I, I had moved into other jobs. I stayed on the council of the ACF for quite a few years, but even that I eventually left because I just felt like, well, A, my knowledge had sort of atrophied about that you know those those areas of science and politics but also I was finding it really emotionally hard to to know so much about the bad stuff happening to the planet so yeah I was working as a as a radio presenter for the ABC and uh, I was also studying opera part-time <laughs> so it's very busy well, but we loved your arts show on Sunday mornings here in Melbourne. Oh, I, would, I, don't, I don't know whether it went national. Did it go national? No, it was just, just, just Melbourne. Yeah. And your background as a performing artist, as a singer, as a musician, was so important to that program, to bring somebody in who actually knew what it was like to stand in front of a crowd and put on a gig was, was I found, really fabulous. I could never understand why they let you go. I don't think I understand either still. <laughs> I got, a fe- I got a feeling that was a, g- a moment of grief too. <laughs> that was that was de- devastating. It was a devastating moment when I learnt that my contract wouldn't be renewed. And, you know, it, it was a devastation that compounded the background devastation, which was Jack and I had started trying to have kids and I'd already had two miscarriages, um, you know, behind the scenes. And, of course, I didn't talk about that on the radio. That was not... That, that would have been completely inappropriate. But as you would have read, I literally had a miscarriage mid-broadcast while I was on air. Yeah. You didn't tell anybody. I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. Sean, I am amazed at that. <laughs> I, I'm not because women do incredible things to, and, I, and performers and journalists do to keep the show on the road. We've all seen that in newsrooms. People, I mean, I could... I could go on and on about the courage of people to keep doing their job, but that was pretty remarkable, that chapter, I have to say. Oh, look, it was very difficult to write. It was one of the most difficult chapters to write and not just because it was a very painful memory, literally and emotionally, but I, in retrospect, I'm baffled by by that moment in my life. I'm baffled 
about why I felt like I just had to keep going. I mean, granted, it was an outside broadcast. There were live, there was a live audience there. We were out at Heidi Museum of Modern Art. So if I had disappeared mid-program, which is what I would have had to do if I had, you know, decided to do something about this miscarriage, you know, there was no one there to, to take over. It just would have, I don't know what they would have done, but it does feel like a kind of madness and... And, you know, it's a madness that I would like women not to have to do in the way that I did. You know, I would like the world to be more informed about the fact that this stuff happens to women all the time. Women are having miscarriages all over the joint and mostly people don't know because mostly we don't talk about it. But, you know, it's it, it's both intensely physically debilitating and emotionally horrible to, to go through that experience so yeah what was I thinking <laughs> well uh, uh, the, uh, the reason why I loved the passage that you chose to 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 read and the different passages the focus here of course is the title of the book is childless the focus is your particular journey through three decades of this want but I think there's a lot of grief here that you are also dealing with and as you acknowledge, it does go back to losing your father as a tiny baby and I'm kind of not surprised with that anecdote of the live broadcast at Heidi that you continued because your mother continued. So I wondered if you could tell everybody what happened to your dad that day mm. and what your mother was then faced with as a young widow mm. and how she just kept everything together to get you through. But also that particular moment that you realise that children need to be smiled and babies need smiling and laughing faces around them. Yeah. So, look, some people may already know this because I did write a bit about it in my first yes. memoir. Yeah, shy. When I was three months old, my brother was... Not even two. My sister was five. My mother was 27. My family went to the beach for a picnic with a, with a big group of people and two of the people got into trouble in the surf and my big brave father, who was an excellent swimmer by all accounts, went out and rescued them and he got the two of them back to close enough to shore to, to, for them to be saved and then he drowned. And my mum was like standing on the beach with these three little kids watching this happen. Um, this is way back in 1964. And I can't even imagine how that must have felt to, to, for her to, to have this absolute cataclysm take place in front of her eyes. Uh, and they were, they had no money, you know. She, she had kids, she couldn't do much work. He was a, an orchestra musician, they didn't pa get paid much at the time. So, yeah, my mum suddenly found herself having to keep the remnants of this little family afloat. And, and she did, somehow she did. She, she, she was a woman of immense fortitude and intelligence and stoicism. And, you know, I think partly that's a generational thing. Her generation and, and the generations before that were mostly brought up to be very stoic. So somehow she kind of kept us together and eventually remarried five years later. But I, it, it's only in recent years that I've started thinking about what impact that must have had on me as an infant. I suppose for, for most of my life I've thought, oh, lucky me, I missed out on all of that terrible tragedy. You know, I was oblivious, but... The more we find out about infant development, 
the more we understand about how just about everything that happens to an infant can have an impact. And I'm sort of assuming that my mother would have gone from being a smiling, relatively happy person to someone, you know, in the depths of, of grief and fear for herself, for her children. So, yeah, I, I imagine a lot of the smiling <laughs> would have stopped. And, you know, I've started reading about the impact of trauma on infants when their parents go through trauma and it and it's quite a thing and I have lived with lifelong anxiety and and a lifelong intense need to please my mother (laughs) and I can't help thinking that that in part at least both of those things may have come from from what our family endured that day and and in subsequent years. Well, I want to talk about your mum a bit later on as a support when you're going through IVF, but I certainly know from first-hand experience that when you lose a parent suddenly and it's traumatic, that life kind of stops and your family has to rebuild in different ways. And we know from, for example, people of yours and my generation who have had parents or grandparents who were Holocaust survivors or the children of Holocaust survivors, that there is this anxiety that envelops the family and whether the tragedy is relived and talked about or whether it's not, it's always there. It's like another person. I remember a friend of mine whose parents were younger when they came out from Poland after the war but they were Holocaust survivors. And I remember her saying that you sometimes you felt that there was this other presence in your family and you just wished that they would just go away mm. so you could have one happy meal or one happy family holiday or something like that. And I think it defines who we are. I used to say that I was not defined by my father's death, that it wasn't a life-defining moment, but it was. And the minute we acknowledge that, and then explore it, as you have in your other earlier book, Shires, you said, but this one also in particular. I felt it was, it's, it's also made you very brave too. Well, I suppose my main role model was my mother and she was insanely brave, I think. Um, I don't mean literally insanely, but, uh, you Is know. Is she still alive? Sadly, no. Sadly, um, she was a victim of COVID getting into uh, aged care homes. Oh, Sean, no. Yes. Did she know you were working on this book? Look, she mm, she sort of did, but she sort of, sort of didn't because she, very sadly she had Alzheimer's in the last four or five years of her life. So she certainly yeah, didn't, didn't know the extent of what I was going to describe in this book. But anyway... She was amazing and she set the bar very, very high for everyone in our family, particularly her children. We've all got PhDs (laughs) because that seemed to be the thing you did. (laughs) We've all endured various different types of travails and on the surface, me and my siblings all seem like highly functional, you know, relatively successful human beings, but I know what's underneath all of that you know and and the levels of anxiety that fizz around in our family (laughs) you're listening to the book pod an audio community that brings writers and readers together you said earlier a, a desire to please your parent do you think in part there's some explanation wanting to replace a family 
that was part of the drive of wanting to create family with Jack and then later with Tom, and I have to stress they are not their real names, but the, these two important relationships in your life, do you mm. think you were trying to recreate a family? Um, that's a really good question. I don't, I don't know that I was conscious of that at the time or, or even... But in retrospect, maybe that's part of what I was doing. I mean, I was... I have to say, you know, when my stepfather turned up when I was four or five years old, things improved vastly for our family because he was and is a very, very lovely, kind, caring person who, you know, just enabled a whole lot of things to happen in our family which probably couldn't have happened otherwise, including my mother having a change of career and becoming a, you know, a highly respected psychologist. I guess because on the surface my family life had been so happy, really... It sounds strange, given that I've just told you about this terrible tragedy. But, you know, I, I really had a very privileged childhood in many, many ways. So, yeah, I guess I thought, oh, well, it's a pretty good way to live your life. <laughs> but it was more that I it was more that I very, very much loved children. I loved spending time with children. Children tended to respond well to me. I felt like I communicated well with children. You know, I had lots of younger cousins when I was growing up who I adored and so I just was like, well, that's fun. I want to do that. I want a bit of that for myself. Do we call that the maternal instinct? <laughs> I don't in the book. And it's, as you would notice, it's something that I kind of shy away from discussing because I think it's very, very fraught, that idea of, of instinct. And, you know, and, and if you talk about a maternal instinct, then how do you explain the many, many women who don't want to have kids? You almost imply there's something wrong with them, which I, I do prefer, not believe. I, I prefer the idea that we ha- that we just have a vibe with kids because some people yeah. honestly do not like children, yeah, and, or babies. And, and why and should they? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly right. So, Sean, if we go back to the book and we if we follow this chronological order of you, you and Jack, or particularly you, because you had that feeling in your twenties, oh, this will happen when I want it to. I'll be able to get pregnant, and then. You have miscarriage and miscarriage and at some point you feel that you can't go on with Jack in that relationship. Was it because of the pressure, do you think, of trying to get pregnant that it was, that it was having an impact on that relationship? Definitely that was a huge factor and not just the pressure of the trying, which, you know, as most women will know, is a kind of agony of hope, you know. You're waiting, 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 waiting for this thing to happen and hopes are dashed and you try again and your hopes are dashed. Well, a month period cycle is a long time to keep waiting. Yeah, it's awful. But I think also, and this is what I realised really only in retrospect, I think that my grief and probably his grief also were very mm, eroding of, of, of our love, of my love, I guess, and we didn't, we didn't manage it very well. I don't think we even acknowledged it. He he was and is an incredibly optimistic person, which is one of the many reasons I loved him. But when you're dealing with intense sadness and, and repeated failure, optimism can come to feel like something you, you're shut out of because you can't feel it yourself. You start to feel a bit hopeless. So that, I think, really drove a wedge between us. And I started to feel... Well, and it, and it also coincided with the loss of my radio career and... So I, I think I went into a quite a deep depression. Loss of confidence. Time. Loss of confidence, loss of, loss of an idea of the future. You know, I'd always, until then, thought my future was going to be fab. And, you know, so many, I'd been spectacularly lucky in so many ways. It kept looking like I was going to 
keep being very lucky and have a fab life. And then things started to turn around and I just didn't really manage that very well and I got very depressed and then I had a really serious back injury and (laughs) ended up in hospital for that. So, you know, things went to shit for me for a while and, uh, and yeah, that relationship didn't survive all of that, all of those disasters, sadly. Yeah. So you meet Tom, who is a musician, tours a lot, had, has had previous relationships and has had children and he makes it very clear to you that he doesn't want to have any more children but you love and adore him and you decide to stay. Was there something in the back of your mind that you, was, you were thinking, can a leopard change its spots? Might I be able to change him? Am I the woman who can? Or even perhaps I can have a baby on my own anyway? Uh, yes, t- to both of those things. I think part of me hoped that I might be able to persuade him to change his mind. And, and then I had this fallback position, which was, well, if I can't, then... I am aware that it was possible for me to try IVF as a solo person using donor sperm. And, you know, I was lucky in that that, that beca- became available, you know, in, at the right time for, for me in history <laughs> to, for that to be an option. But, you know, again, it got really messy when I tried to persuade that, that man to change his mind. And it got messy because... Even though I told myself, oh, well, he has a right to not want any more children. He already has three, you know, he's getting on. Part of me just actually thought, no, if he loves me enough, he'll do this for me. So I had two completely different mm, narratives going on in my brain, one of which seemed like the kind of fair narrative (laughs) and one of which seemed an uncontrollable need in me to try and get him to change his mind because I wanted this thing Did you so realise at the time you had these two stories, these two lines playing in your head? Well, yes and no. Knowing that I, not, I didn't realise enough to be able to realise what a mess that was making of my head. But I remember having those thoughts. Yeah, I remember thinking to myself, you know, what, how can he deny me this thing that I that I want and surely he can see that it would make us both terribly happy (laughs) which is a sort of a self-obsessed point of view in a way and and as I as I write about in in the memoir that that didn't work out he didn't want to I couldn't change his mind and so that's when I attempted solo IVF using donor sperm. So this is where I want to bring you back to your mum because you do this and you have one embryo left And I think of all the times when I teared up in this book, I think that was the time when I was most emotional as I am now and I'm talking about it. And it doesn't work and you ring your mum. Well, my mum, yeah, my mum became my support person through that year, that terrible trial of of IVF. She would pick me up from the appointments and we would go and have lunch or coffee and and I would cry and (laughs) she would hold my hand. So, you know, this, this last time when it, it didn't work um, and I was running out of money, you know, it's expensive as everybody knows and I was doing it alone, I was running out of money and I was running out of emotional... But you were still with Tom. I was still with but Tom. But the journey, the, the IVF journey was very much yours. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 yeah, so I had this moment sitting in a cafe with my mum and I just suddenly realised I could not do this anymore. It was too hard. I needed to... You say to her, I'm so tired, I want to get away, but when I try to work out what I want to get away from, I realise it's me. 
That is huge. Yeah, but I'm not the only person on the planet to have felt that, I'm sure. I'm sure you're not, but can you tell us that? And then you say to her, I need to stop now. So I wondered with, my question to you is when you said, I need to stop now, did you mean I need to stop this treatment or I need to stop trying to get away from myself because that is a very dangerous place to be in? Yeah. I meant I need to stop this treatment and this quest, this hopeless quest of mine, in order to stop feeling like I needed to get away from myself. I needed to recover, rediscover who I was when I wasn't this person obsessed with trying to have a child, who I was professionally, who I was with my friends, who I could be in Tom's family. Um, because, you know, there were consolations. He had a big, amazing, loving family. And and you pay tribute to that. They accepted you. His, mm. his children accepted you completely. Uh, and even one of his sons, when the son has uh, a child, you form a wonderful relationship with that little step grandchild, I guess we mm. call the child. Mm. There's a lot at stake. <laughs> There's a lot at stake. And, you know... Surprise, surprise, the relationship doesn't last. Well, I have to say, at this, <laughs> d- this darkest, deepest, most awful time in your life, I have memories of you know meeting you when I used to work at the ABC radio with Doug Ayton and a call-in and there you were. I followed your music career. Obviously, I read your columns in The Age. We overlapped there briefly together as columnists there. And I was very aware of this sunny, beautiful exquisitely voiced person who when I read the book I can't align the two I'm very glad you came out of the dark place because by nature I think you are a sunny person even though interestingly there were not those smiles when you were a baby which you which you talk about what impact does not smiling parents have on babies Mm. so you came out of it yeah I'm, I'm come I'm still coming out of it it's 10 years since that relationship ended And as I write about in the book, the end of that relationship didn't just mean the end of an intimate relationship. Sadly, it meant the end of my relationship with that whole family. So I had some very, very dark years. And I bet people seeing me professionally during that time would have still thought, oh, there's sunny old Sean again. But, uh, you know, and that's a kind of, that's a, formed persona I suspect or it was at that time um, was it, it must have been exhausting it was did you totally exhausting. did you sometimes go home and collapse because I think we've all done that when we've had things we've covered up mm. it saved my bacon because you kept busy I kept busy I had in, I've always had really interesting work I have always had a lot of energy and all the kind of nervous energy generated by that sadness got shoveled into my into my work and and I was also you know channeling my mother I was determined not to let this sadness derail me or derail the public perception of me and you know that's that's also something that I have been forced to think a lot about in writing this book was yeah what was what's been the cost to me of so assiduously cultivating a public persona of control and strength and yes sunniness and stoicism and 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 it has been exhausting I'm I'm I've been tired most of my life well it's it's interesting this book what impact does this have on if we call it 
brand Shan. And I thought about this reading a book of, of by a friend of mine a couple of years ago now, Carol Llewellyn, who's now the director of the Wheeler Centre. But Carol uh, had had it all on paper, just like you. And she was a, she was a director of literary festivals around the world. She I had, wrote stories about her yeah. and her marvelous career in New York. She's she was had incredible. An, she's had an amazing time, mm. an amazing life, and she's highly talented. And she's diagnosed with MS. And she talks about it in her memoir. So these are confronting... I sometimes wonder... Well, my first thought is always, good on you, writers, for having this courage. But then I think, oh, what is the residual damage of this? Or, in fact, is it all upside when you write this? And I was thinking about this when I'm reading your book, Childless, and you talked about the... Uh, you, now have, you now are a, a teacher and a lecturer in creative writing. And you have this creative writing class... And one of the students says, excuse me, Sean, why are there so many stories that we're studying that follow the themes of drownings or disappearances of husbands or fathers or men? And you realise, oh, my God, <laughs> without me knowing, I've been following a theme. I, I laughed with that one. <laughs> I'm so glad there's at least one laugh in it. <laughs> Oh, there are a few. There are a few <laughs> moments of, of mirth I ha- and, and, a f- and quite a few moments of joy. I have to stress that to mm. people who have not read the book. But can you tell us about writing its impact, po- its positive impact in this particular zone and where you were going with the short stories about yeah. the drowning fathers? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, again, I, I'm so naive. <laughs> and, and for someone who prides herself on, you know, trying to, employ emotional intelligence I'm also at times incredibly ignorant about my own emotions and I literally had had not even realized that this theme had been running through my creative writing life for decades that yes somehow this essential story that was the story of my family that you know the story of my father's death had had been mutating and and finding its way into just about every story short story I wrote or you know essays I'd written or I mean you know I wrote I wrote an essay for Mianjin many years ago about the Balibo journalists who were killed in East Timor and for me that was all about politics and my deep interest in in East Timor but again it's a bunch of men suddenly dying when people didn't expect them to. So it's, it's everywhere, this, this motif. And it took, yeah, it took one of my students to point it out to me. So I come back to where we started, I guess, which is this idea of writing as therapy. It's some part of my brain, and there are, we all have many unknowable secret parts of our brains, don't we? But some part of my brain has just been replaying and replaying and replaying and replaying this story over and over and over again throughout my life. And now I'm writing a story about that story in which I write about realising that I've been writing about that story. So it's, it's layer upon layer of kind of self-reflexivity there. Um, well, tell me about it, putting the lecturer's hat on. Tell me about the structure of this book, which mm. is so interesting because it's not chronological, it's not linear. Mm. But I do feel at the end that I have completed a circle. Yeah, oh, I'm so Pat, glad. What was the setup? What was the premise? Or did you just start writing? It was a very messy business and as I always tell my writing students, that is often necessary. Often you just have to go with the messiness until you work work out what it is you're doing. So you mentioned earlier that you and I have both written columns for The Age. A lot of the 
chapters in this new memoir started life as 400 word columns in the Sunday Age uh, because I was the personal columns I was writing about my life. So I had a bunch of jigsaw piece puzzles, if you like, that I could gather together and think, okay, well, that's going to go in somewhere, that's going to go in somewhere, that's going to go in somewhere. And then I've got to fill in all the gaps and, and go back to the earlier stuff. But to be honest, I guess as a reader and a teacher of writing, I, I was bored to death with the idea of a strictly linear narrative, a strictly chronological form of storytelling. I, the thought of doing that myself and starting, say, with, you know, my father's death or whatever and ending with me in 2019, because that's as far as it goes, made me feel nauseous. So, And I've become more and more interested in the way that memories function and the way that we understand ourselves through our most vivid memories. I mean, we are only what we remember in a way. Can I ask at mm. this point that you started thinking that there'll, there'll be a book in this somewhere, I'll mm. land somewhere. Had you been talking to Michael Haywood or any of the team at Text that you had this idea you were playing with? No, no I hadn't. When, um, did, that, when did that discussion come into the... Well, I, I talked to my agent, being? Jenny Darling, about probably four or five years ago about this and I have been just very slowly noodling away at it because the other thing that that's in the book that we haven't talked about yet is is my camper vanning travels which were my way of trying to find something good out of this bad thing that that had happened you know you my child designed your own camper van <laughs> <laughs> it's great well my stepdad yes. really yes but i he helped he, i helped him make it isn't that great yeah so and it was on those camper vanning travels which I've been doing now for seven or eight years that I started writing the bits that also became the jigsaw puzzle pieces that eventually came together so yeah the, the book jumps backwards and forwards in time in a way that I, I, I was frightened would would annoy the readers but I wanted people to to understand intuitively that this is how we do think about our lives we have a moment of epiphany in the present because of something that happened in the past and then we have another moment of realisation, you know, in the present because of something that happened in the even more distant past. So I'm trying to mimic the way our brain works when it's trying to understand itself. And the segues, the links. Something triggers off something. And yeah, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a jumping around. It's a sort of a um, lateral way of thinking that is what the human brain does so marvellously. Well, Sean, it's that is kind of an unexpected but nice segue to our question that we love to ask our visiting authors to our show, which is if you were on the desert island, which author or which book or books would you like to be with? Mm. So let's assume that you've swum for the day, you've collected your coconuts <laughs> and you're sitting down to what is in your knapsack on that desert island. Mm. Well, I suspect I would be very lonely on that desert island and I would want to find a way of being with people and uh, I don't know how long I'm going to be on that that desert island so I need some big fat books so I think Charles Dickens might be the go because oh my goodness so many characters so hilarious a lot of fun in those books well he was the original in a way he wrote like you have, he wrote little, well, they weren't little, they were about a thousand words, I think, each day, really, yeah. and they became well, novels. He wrote for newspapers, yes. didn't he? Yeah. But he wrote these vignettes that were actually mm. an ongoing story. They were a serial. 
jigsaw puzzle pieces and had people come back for more tomorrow yeah yeah so you could so yeah me and chuck on the island i think that's a great (laughs) idea all those characters all those voices you can play with yeah i don't have to have to act them out myself of course all alone (laughs) shan pry your book is as i said it's courageous and it's beautiful and i'm so pleased that generations of women who are either going through this childless issue or, in fact, have been through it, that they have this as not only a comfort but as a really terrific resource. Your optimism shines through and so does your sunshine. Childless, a story of freedom and longing by Sean Pryor and it is published by text and everyone, it's at a bookshop near you. So go hunt it down. Sean Pryor, thank you so much for joining us on The Book Pod. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.